Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that there is hope found in you. And that that hope is placed in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Who has become for us salvation and glory and eternal hope. Father, there are many burdens that we carry many difficulties that we walk through. And yet, Father, we find that we can come and praise You in all of it because You are enough. Thank You that Your Son comes to us as the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. So, Father, may we ever come and adore Him. Father, angels burst forth in glorious worship to You. Father, may our hearts and our lives reflect that reality in all we say and do. Father, now as we look to Your Word, may You work in our hearts as only You can. Father, we are dependent upon your spirit here this morning. And so, Lord, we need you to move among us. We need you to do the work within us. Change us and transform us more into the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. And Lord willing, we will... Be finishing up our look at pilgrim pastors. First Peter chapter five, and we'll read verses one through five this morning. First Peter chapter five. Peter writes, So exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what we have looked at already is we began two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I think it is now, uh, we talked about the focus that pilgrim pastors are to have. And again, Peter points us to that. He is one who is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He is one who bears witness 
to the significance of those sufferings. And we talked about, particularly for Peter, as someone who denied Christ, the sufferings of Christ became immensely important because it is through the sufferings of Christ that Peter was able to be restored to fellowship with Christ. And then as we witness to what Christ's sufferings have done on the cross, we then look forward with expectancy to the glory that we will share in, that we will partake in, as Peter says, we will fellowship in when Christ comes again. And so we, we looked at that, that that is to be the main focus, how Christ's redemption provides hope and how we look forward to a day when glory will be ours if we are in Christ Jesus. So that's the focus of pilgrim pastors. And then we started working through the function of pilgrim pastors. And we began to see, first of all, that pastors are shepherds. And we spent pretty much the entire time last week looking at how pastors are shepherds. And particularly we talked about that there are two roles that a shepherd has. A shepherd is to provide. He's to provide sustenance. And of course, looking to the good shepherd as our example who provides hope from his word, pastors are to feed the flock with the word of God. And then we saw that pastors are also to protect And there is a warning responsibility that pastors have in warning against false teaching, warning against uh, sinful activity, so that we would not fall into a way in which we put ourselves in danger. And so that's where we sort of left off last week, is this idea that pastors are shepherds. And then we sort of jumped into this a little bit, but we're going to sort of pick up here, seeing that pastors shepherd to please God. Pastors, shepherd to please God. So again, look at, look at what we see in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Again, we talked about last week how shepherds are not to be man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. That as a shepherd goes about protecting and providing for the flock, he will one day stand before the chief shepherd, which Peter points to in verse 4. He will stand before the chief shepherd and give an account for how he has protected and provided for the sheep. Now, particularly what Peter points out here in this second verse is that we are to do this, pastors are to do this as God would have you. Pastors must shepherd following the example of the good shepherd. Now, how does that connect with this idea of shepherding as God would have them to do? Well, when we look to Christ, was there ever a moment when Christ ever displeased the Father? No. In fact, Matthew 17, 5 When Christ was transfigured before the disciples, something that Peter himself was an eyewitness of, this is what he heard. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It is the example of Jesus who always pleases the Father that shepherds are to look to. And again, Peter here in 2 Peter recounting this reality. How he heard the voice born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
You know, I have many pastors that I have had interact with in my life. Of course, my main pastor most of my life, many of you know, was my father. And I look to him and I see examples from him of things that I can implement and ways I can seek to shepherd the flock here. You know, there are other pastors I had while I was at college. There were youth pastors I had that were extremely influential upon me. There are quote-unquote celebrity pastors that I read and and they're influential on my way of thinking and, and look to for counsel and guidance. But ultimately, all of these human pastors are human. They're, they're fallible. They make mistakes. But as a pastor, I am to look to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, who only, always, ever pleased the Father. And in, in Peter's um, ex- exhortation here to pastors, we see a reality that's supposed to be for all of us. Are we not all to seek to please the Father in all that we do? Seeking to be like Christ. And so, shepherds then ought to think of themselves not in their service as way of eye service, as people pleasers, but notice what he says, as bondservants of Christ or as slaves to Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to man. So pastors, as they shepherd, they shepherd to please God. And if they are shepherding to please God, then they will be eager to go about that role. If you look at, what again, what he says in verse 2, he says that we're to, not do, to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Pastors must be eager for the flock's good. Now, it's important to note here that a pastor is one who does this willingly. It's someone who goes about and is called to this particular ministry. It is something that can't be forced upon someone. And that was one thing I appreciated about my father, is he always insisted upon me and confirmed with me that it was something I wanted to do, not just I was doing what my dad was doing. The church is not a family business in that perspective. Rather, it's something that you're called to do. You're called to do. It's not just a job. It must be your joy. It's not a burden that we must fulfill by compulsion. Now, I'm sure many of you maybe feel that way about your jobs. Oh, I've got to go do this. I've got to take care of that. And and we feel the compulsion of that because, well, we've got to put food on the table and we've got to make sure our bosses are happy and all those different types of things. The pastor's focus is not compelled, particularly for the sake of shameful gain, but rather he comes eagerly. It is to be the great joy of the shepherd to shepherd the flock. Timothy, or Paul, says to Timothy that this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires or desires the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. It begins with that built-in, unstoppable drive to shepherd the flock. 
And if the desire is not there, you can't force somebody into the role. It is a noble task that he desires, but it must be a God-wrought desire within him. Again, we see the example of the great shepherd, the good shepherd. John 17, 13. Notice what Jesus says in his prayer before he goes to the cross. He says, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ's great joy was to shepherd his flock, to shepherd his disciples. And so it is to be the joy of a pastor. Now here's the problem with a pastor or a shepherd who comes in and seeks particularly to do this for shameful gain. In John 10, 12-13, Jesus talks about shepherds, and he talks about the hired hand who is not a shepherd. What does the hired hand do who doesn't own the sheep? Well, when he sees the wolf coming, does he fight the wolf? What does he do? He leaves. He leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Those who engage in ministry for the sake of their own financial gain, are hired hands. And when the going gets tough, what do they do? Flee. They leave. And so as Christ, of course, the going became the toughest for Him of anyone as He went to the cross, yet He was willing to do it because He loved the sheep. And so shepherds, pastors, are to have that same example as they seek to please God, doing it eagerly for the sake of the good of the sheep. But as they do this, as they are, are doing this willingly, not under compulsion, as they're doing it eagerly, not for shameful gain, there is a manner in which they are to do it. And we see this in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but rather being examples to the flock. The pastor must be gentle. You know, if you've followed evangelical news lately, I don't know, like, but not, like there's no like ENN, Evangelical News Network or anything, but if you, if, if you follow some of the stories that have happened recently from celebrity pastors, there has been, a, unfortunately, a tendency towards domineering behavior particularly over the past 10 years, there are pastors who assert their pastoral authority and demand unflinching allegiance from those who follow them. The pastor can never be questioned. He is the one who leads without any type of of accountability to anyone. He becomes a dictator, sometimes even lambasting the sheep from the pulpit. Pastors are not to be dictators. You know, I I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where a pastor is a dictator. It is oppressive. It destroys confidence in Christ, and it is damaging to your spiritual well-being. Pastors are not to be dictators, but notice what he says. They are to be gentle. 
not domineering over those in your cloth and your charge, but being examples to the flock. They're to be examples particularly of humility. And again, where do we look to see that humility on display? To other pastors? To Christ. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, realize who is saying this. This is Christ, the creator of the universe. The one who has all power and authority at his discharge. The one who spoke and worlds came blazing into existence. The one who is preeminent over all things, regardless of whether or not we recognize it. This is Christ. How does Christ present himself to his disciples? I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly. This is to be the great example of, for believers, and particularly for pastors. You know, I I often think of the pastoral example given in the way in which Christ restores Peter. Now, I want you to think for a second, how would you react if you got to talk with the person who, when you needed them the most, denied you, not once, not twice, but three times. And then you think, oh, well, you know, I would try to be nice. But then think about the last time somebody said even the smallest, um, smallest, not nice thing about you. How is your reaction there? Notice what Jesus does. He comes and he asks Peter. He probes him. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't let Peter out of his sinful actions. He confronts him. There's a reason why Jesus said three times to probe the heart of Peter. But he does it with gentleness and love. And then he restores him and says, go and feed my sheep. And then Pentecost happens. And who's the one who preaches the sermon at Pentecost? It's Peter. Jesus comes as the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, who is gentle, not domineering. Now, there is a reality that Christ is harsh with those who cast off His Lordship. Those who refuse to bow the knee to Him. There will be a day where they will stand before the fiery judgment of Christ. But the glory and hope of the gospel is if you come to Christ in faith, you find there a Savior who is gentle and lowly and provides what for our weary souls? Rest. He provides rest for your souls. So pastors, as they imitate the good shepherd in humility and gentleness, they then are called to provide that same example to the flock. Again, notice what Paul says to Timothy about 
qualifications for elders. He's not to be a drunkard. He's not to be violent, or, but gentle. He's not to be quarrelsome and not a lover of money. He says again later on, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he tells Titus, an overseer as God's steward must be above approach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. All of this comes to a head here and, and it's summed up in what Peter is saying. Not domineering over those in your charge. That is the example the chief shepherd gives to pastors and it is the example that pastors are to show to their flock and it is the example that the flock is to seek to have in action in their lives. Then we see as pastors shepherd to please God, we see again in verse 4, they are looking to this day when the chief shepherd appears. When the chief shepherd appears, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's interesting here how Peter uses the term chief shepherd rather than what we would maybe expect, good shepherd. Because that's what Jesus calls himself. He is the good shepherd. So why does he use this term chief shepherd? Well, because all other shepherds are his under-shepherds. They are stewards, as we just read, of what Christ has entrusted them with. But the chief shepherd is Christ. Any shepherd who points to themselves as the end-all, be-all of what they are saying, their opinions are the thing that you're to look through, they're pushing through their own ideas, any shepherd that does that and does not and by doing that, does not point to the chief shepherd, is failing in that role of shepherd. This also is, frankly, a very frightening and stark reality for pastors. Because they will stand before Christ and give an account. The chief shepherd will appear. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. My desire as I shepherd you, as your pastor, again, is not to please you. That's the wrong focus. My desire as your shepherd is is not to necessarily get what I need for life. This isn't a job. My desire as a shepherd is to realize that I am pointing you to one who is supremely better than I will ever be. Jesus Christ. He is your hope, not me. And I will stand before Him and give an account for how I shepherd this flock and this congregation. So, 
This passage is mostly focused at the pastor. But Peter doesn't leave the sheep out either. And we see this in verse 5 where we see finally the flock of pilgrim pastors. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. How many of you? How many? All of you. With humility, one toward another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to who? The humble. Just three things about the flock of pilgrim pastors. The first is we see submission to the shepherd brought up here. Now there's that word again. Right? We've talked about this submission word over and over again. Submission to earthly authorities, submission in families, and now we're seeing submission again in the church. That is a prickly word, isn't it? How many of you here like to submit? Raise your hands. Nobody's, all right? We don't enjoy submission, but yet the Bible is clear here. Now, the question is, who is Peter focusing on? Because he particularly says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So who are the younger here? Well, there's a number of different viewpoints as to who this is really referring to. Um, Again, when we understand the term elder, the term elder does not necessarily refer to someone who is younger in age, but rather someone who has spiritual maturity, someone who is able to guide and direct and point people to the truth of God's Word. And so an elder is someone who has spiritual maturity. So is it possible here that he's referring to those who have spiritual immaturity, those who are new converts, those who haven't grown uh, perhaps as much as the elders are? And that's, I think, a possibility. I think that that seems to make sense. But it is likely here that Peter is rather emphasizing the need of the younger by age to listen to the wisdom, particularly the spiritual wisdom, of the elders in the congregation. That they particularly need to be careful to listen and submit to the teaching of the elders. Now, why would I say that? Well, there's a couple of linguistic reasons, but I think if we just step back for a second... Young people are not really prone to submission, are they? If you've ever been the parent of a teenager or any child, for, that, for instance, at that, at that way, you know that young people have a tendency to fight against authority, to push back against authority. Young people are more apt to rebel. And so this makes them all the more in need of guidance. Now, now here's what sin does, all right? Sin will take us and we'll say, all right, the thing that a young person needs is the very thing that they want the least. They need guidance, but what do they do? Push back against it. And yet it's the very thing they need the most. That's what sin does. It keeps us in a cycle of destruction. It keeps us away from the thing we need greatly need. And so most young people want to cast off authority. They don't want the restrictions. They don't want to have to deal with these things. They don't want to deal with the rules and the requirements of their family. They want to be free. 
And really, Jesus tells us, who is it that truly sets you free? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That freedom only truly comes when you find that freedom in Jesus Christ. And that is freedom not to go and to indulge in your sinful ideas, but it is freedom to find freedom from sin. And to find Christ all-fulfilling and sufficient in all things. Now, Peter has already reminded us that all authority is ordained by God. Here, he particularly has an idea, the, the idea of governmental authority, but by principle, this can be cast to the authority in the church. Be subject. Why? And this, I think, is important. Why should anyone be subject to authority? Is it to please the authority? No, we're subject for the Lord's sake. Just the same reason that the pastor shepherds the flock as God would have him. We don't do these things to please our authorities. We ultimately live our lives to please God. And so he's saying be subject to every human institution. Then he talks about the, the, um, the leaders in a governmental perspective, whether it be the emperor as supreme to governors as sent by the, him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The reality is, you younger people out there, that God has providentially placed you in this congregation at this time for a purpose. What do you do during Sunday morning services? Are you checked out? Are you thinking about other stuff? Are you wishing you weren't here? Or are you listening to the Word as it is proclaimed? Again, my desire here is not to come to you and to say, I have it all figured out. I don't. All I can do is give you the Word of life. So listen. Listen to what God says. Don't be like those in Psalm 2. Don't be like the kings of the earth that set themselves and the rulers that take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, I'm going to cast off the bonds. This is why Peter is warning the younger to be subject, to listen to the elders. I think it's also important to note here, Peter doesn't tell the elders to make the youngers submit. It is to be wrought willingly within you. And so pray that God would open your heart and bring you to the point where you're seeking to learn from Him. Well, submission that is focused on here, particularly to the younger, Peter now delves even deeper for the rest of us, those of you who don't identify as younger. Which, when do you ever really stop identifying as younger? I, I don't know. I've turned 40 this year, and I think I'm starting to get there now. What is it that we're all supposed to do? We're all to be humble. Again, look at verse 5. Likewise, you, young, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he says, clothe yourselves. And now he opens it up. All of you. Is there anyone here who does not fit that description of all of you? No. It includes all of us. 
Every member of the body of Christ, we are called to be humble. Now, it's interesting the way that Peter describes this. He calls us to clothe ourselves with humility. To clothe ourselves with humility. The focus here is important. We have to put on humility. The same concept Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the armor of God. He tells us to put on the armor of God. It's the same idea. Clothe yourself. The idea is that it is an everyday aspect of your lives. Every morning when you wake up, you know, I don't know what your routines are. Maybe you took your shower in the morning or in, in the evening. Maybe you take it in the morning. But I am certain that you don't head out the door without having put clothes on. Because you're not ready for the day. You're not ready for the day if you haven't prepared and clothed yourself with what you need for the day. Particularly on a day like today. You look outside. What's this white stuff? I wasn't expecting all this today. So you get up and, and you really see the wind blowing. And it's cold outside. So what do you do to be prepared for the day? You put on a jacket. You wear something warm. You get yourself ready for the day every day. So what is Peter telling us to do? How do we as Christians spiritually prepare for the day? We clothe ourselves with humility. If you haven't put on your humble coat, you're not ready for the day. That's the importance of what Peter is calling us to do. You know, I think we talk about putting on our Sunday best when we come to church. And yet we can do that outwardly and inwardly still be robed with pride. I can't think of a better example of hypocrisy than that. Having everything put into place and then feeling like because you've got everything put into place, that's why you can be proud when you come to church. Every member of the body of Christ must put on humility. This is a command for every Christian, including pastors, that we are to have this attitude toward one another. And that's also important here as well. We clothe ourselves, all of you, with humility toward each other, toward one another. Humility doesn't mean anything if you're not humble toward someone. Humility doesn't exist if you don't show humility towards other people. If you're not humble with others. Now, we can trick ourselves into thinking we're humble, and then if we act pridefully, are we truly humble? You know what? It's evident to everybody else around us that we're not humble, but you know who it's not evident to? Ourselves. We have this idea in today where we talk about humble bragging. You've heard that term before. It is hypocrisy to the greatest extent. What does humility towards others look like? Well, it means we do nothing, as Paul tells us, from selfish ambition or conceit. It means that we set ourselves aside. We set ourselves aside. 
but in humility. How do we look at others? They are more significant than we are. The world tells us the most important thing in your life is you. Christ tells us the most important thing in your life is the glory of God and then others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but what else are we to do? Look to the interests of others. And ultimately, this is produced by having a mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. How did Jesus display humility? Being in the form of God, he did not account equality with God, something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave himself away for you and me so that we could share in his glory. And he did it by letting go of the, the, the one person who has the absolute right to be proud in this universe. Let go of those things to humbly serve his people. You know, the, this is evident this time of year. You see manger scenes. And the God of creation came in the form of a little baby dependent upon his mother for sustenance. Jesus Christ came in the form of that small child. He had to learn and grow. The Scripture tells us that these things happen. I don't understand how that all works out with the God of eternity growing and learning and his humanity. I, I can't put all that together, but what I do know is it shows immense humility. That should be our goal, to be as humble as Christ is. Because what does Paul say? Have this mind among yourselves. Humility to all. Then finally, as we walk through this call, we are to be dependent on the grace of God. Why is humility so important? Well, Peter points this out. God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Scriptures are abundantly clear. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. What's the first one? Haughty eyes. Pride. God hates pride. It's all over Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is hatred and evil, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil have perverted speech. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Psalm 101.5 Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, God will not endure them. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 1004, in the pride of his face, 
The wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are what? There is no God. Pride is atheism. Now, we will be very quick to criticize Christopher Hitchens and, and all the, 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 the scholarly atheists that are out there, but we can, in our pride, act just like them. So we must clothe ourselves with humility because apart from that humility, we deny the existence of God and His claim on our lives. But God is not a God who just simply opposes the proud. What does He do? He gives grace to who? The humble. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. God gives grace to the humble. Those who recognize that they are nothing and God is everything to those who think, God, those who recognize that they are nothing, God gives everything. And to those who think they are everything, God gives nothing. And so we must recognize that God gives grace to the humble. As James says, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what does that look like? What does humility look like? Well, there's that word that we hate. Submit yourselves, therefore, to who? To God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And those who are wretched and mourning and weeping and crying and grieving their own sin, if they come before the Lord, what does God promise to do? He will exalt you. So pilgrim pastors are called to have the right focus, to have the right function, and then to seek the flock and gives gives instruction to the flock that they would, through humility, seek the grace of God in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would take it, apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, so much in this passage is applicable for every single person here. And ultimately, Father, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. Father, may we seek to honor and glorify you. As I, as the shepherd of this flock, may you by your spirit strengthen me to please you. And Father, may you work by your spirit in the hearts of these people that they would show humility to each other as they submit to you in all things. Father, work in our midst by your spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name.